You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Let's do a quick plot recap. The hero, Neo, discovers that the world he thinks is real is actually a vast computer program designed by robots to stop humans realizing the truth, the truth that they are prisoners. The guards of this prison are the agents. Not like my agent, who's really nice, but evil agents. Neo's destiny is to free us from the prison, from slavish obedience to the man, the machine, the Matrix. Anyway, the reason I bring this up now is that there is a scene where the agents come to capture Neo, which I'm sure you're familiar with. He's sitting at his office desk, staring at a blank screen, The flickering ceiling light drains the colour from his face and he peers over the top of his grey cubicle walls. And across a field of identical cubicles, he sees the agents in their black suits, black ties and black glasses advancing towards him. He tries to escape, to scurry between photocopiers, filing cabinets and metal shelves trying to find a way out of this stullifying landscape. But he fails. There is no escape from the agents, the evil agents, and no escape from the open plan office. Hello, welcome to Patented. It's my podcast about the history of inventions with me, Dallas Campbell, not in the Matrix, as far as I know. Although, according to Elon Musk, hey, maybe we're all living in a computer simulation. That is a subject for another show. One thing we like to do on Patented is to take everyday things, things we are familiar with, things we don't even question, things that we are anaesthetized about, boring things even, and show you the surprising, interesting stories of where they came from. And nothing could be more boring, nothing could be more tedious, perhaps, than the open plan office. If you've worked in an open plan office, you'll know what I mean. They're good in lots of ways. You can talk to people freely and easily. But my God, if you want to have a meeting, if you want to have a bit of privacy, if you want to do a Zoom call or something, all you want is four walls and a ceiling and a door. And uh, the open plan office does not facilitate that. And yet when it was conceived, the open plan was supposed to make the world a better place to promote the free flow of ideas between empowered workers. You can just imagine the meeting when that was decided. Something radical that would shake up and destroy office hierarchies forever, man. Here to tell the story is Jennifer Kaufman Bula, a design historian and author of the book Open Plan, a design history of the American office. And a very interesting story it is too. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
Jennifer, the invention of the open plan office. Where do we start with that one? I mean, it's one of those things that everyone groans at. I slightly groan. I remember when we moved, when I was at the BBC and we moved to the new building and it was all, everything was open plan. You couldn't get a meeting room. And all you wanted to do is have a room with walls so you could actually have a private conversation. You couldn't. It was a disaster. So where do we, how far do we go back? So we had walls and then someone took away the walls. Like where's the origins of the open plan office and why is it much maligned these days? Yeah, so the open plan is this, funny artifact of architectural planning that in some ways is very, very old. We could talk about the origins of the architectural open plan, which is just an interior with no fixed partitions, no walls. Even in the early 20th century, there were offices being built like that um, and using movable full height partitions that could be adjustable. I live in a building of such, I live in a 1930s building, which was the old waterworks building. And the main hall is this massive capacious room. It's absolutely vast. And it was an open plan office. There was just loads of desks and people did work. So that was the 1930s. Exactly. So this isn't really a new thing, but in my research, I really start The kind of modern notion of what an open plan is with all of its idealism really starts in the post-war era, like, you know, kind of the mid 20th century. Yeah, well, the open plan, obviously, it is a type of design, but there is a kind of set of ideals, I suppose, behind the term open plan. It's a bit like sort of postmodernism. It means a time and a place, but it also means many more things. And I suspect... Just looking at your work, there's all kinds of interesting things that the term open plan opens up. So what was the true origins of open plan in inverted commas rather than just a place without walls when it suddenly started to mean things? Yeah. So in the kind of late 50s, early 60s, there was a pair of brothers who were working in Germany. Their names Eberhard and Wolfgang Schnell who founded this group called the Quick-Borner Team. Called the what? The Quick? Quick-Borner Team. Quick-Borner Team. I thought you said the Quick-Porno Team. I was like, what the <laughs> hell? <laughs> well, that would be a very different story, wouldn't it? That would be a very different story. An entertaining story and one I would like to look into. <laughs> <laughs> but the Quick-Borner Team, they entered into office design by way of management theory. They weren't actually architects. They were interested in the idea that the office was a space of communication. And so they were doing these early experiments where they took these large, open, unpartitioned spaces, mostly old warehouses in Germany, and reconfigured an office by way of communication patterns. They really believed that communication was the centerpiece of what an office should do. They believed that walls were inhibitors of communication and that by opening up the space and embracing a loose configuration that foregrounded communication above all else, they would create a new kind of office environment and a more dynamic office environment. And that was really kind of one of the early iterations. Their first experiments are in the late 1950s. And through the early 1960s, this idea of office landscaping, that's what they call the term, they begin kind of building offices in this style through Western Germany and then into kind of Western Europe. And around the same time in the United States, there was a man named Robert Probst who was working for Herman Miller, an office furniture manufacturer based in Michigan. I love Herman Miller. He's the guy who did all the Eames chairs. Right. They're the manufacturer. That's right. The manufacturer of Eames, of the iconic Noguchi table. The mastermind chair. If you've ever seen the TV show Mastermind, the famous black chair, which is a quiz show in the UK, that's an Eames chair. It's a Herman Miller chair. I love it. It's an icon. Absolutely. So Herman Miller was already an important manufacturer of modernist design by this period. But Robert Probst was the head of research at Herman Miller. And he 
was very interested in the workplace and sort of really thinking about how workplaces were designed. At this point in time, Herman Miller wasn't really known for office furniture so much. I mean, they had office furniture, but it wasn't their bread and butter the way that it is today, or at least one of their important kind of areas. Can I just ask what the kind of motivation of all this was? I mean, you mentioned management theory, but did that start because there was a problem that somebody had said, okay, people aren't working hard enough in offices or people aren't communicating enough in offices. We need to change something. Like, What was the origins of it becoming a thing? Right. I I will start actually on the American side for this, because I think some of these issues actually do originate in America, which is a belief that the American corporation, which was a very hierarchical, very structured, very top down, was stifling creativity, stifling innovation. There was a real fear of this culture of conformity that was so deeply embedded in the kind of American style corporation. And of course, this is also the area in which these American corporations are becoming international corporations, right? Multinationals. And so this style of organizational culture was actually spreading internationally. So it wasn't really just an American feature. But and I was think the it politics, was, some- was the politics of the time kind of filtering into that? I'm thinking about sort of mid-century post-war politics, a new sort of liberal agenda, perhaps sort of creeping into society, feminism, things like this. Absolutely, you're right. So the kind of emerging culture of protest, all of the activism of that period, the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, the disability rights movement, all of these were starting to challenge the dominance not only of this kind of very hierarchical organization and culture, but also all of the discrimination embedded in that, right? Who is included? Who is at the top of those organizations? Mostly white, able-bodied men. <laughs> and so there is this kind of emerging conversation about a need for greater diversity, an environment that will bring in younger people into the corporation, into the organization, this kind of real desire to mirror this kind of emerging youth culture in the organization itself, and therefore actually hopefully draw in more young people as consumers, as well as as workers into the organization. So all of this is definitely under the hood of kind of what's happening in this critical moment when the open plan starts to really take off. So it's born with high ideals, with an idealism of ways of working better. So just explain how it sort of manifests itself physically. So this idea of open plan started in Germany, came over to America um, what was the name? Propst. Was that his name, Mr. Propst? Right. Yep. Robert Propst. So so the second half of this origin story has to do with Robert Propst's experiments with office furniture and office design. And he was really interested in this new style of work and this new idea of working that he saw as knowledge work. He was really fascinated by the idea of the knowledge worker, who was a new class of worker. He was not really an executive, although he was highly educated and well-trained, had a lot of autonomy and responsibility in his job because, yes, these were mostly men. And he was really interested in how to think about a new kind of office that supported the work of thinking rather than paper pushing or top-down kind of management structures, right? He was really interested in thinking about a more dynamic, a more flexible, a more adaptable workspace that would suit the really unique working needs of this new kind of worker, the knowledge worker. And so he started developing a new kind of furniture concept that he saw as more adaptable and more emblematic of this new way of working. He said, you know, knowledge workers are working with information and ideas. They need space to work with images, to work with paper, to move things around, to work with all of the materials and ephemera of work. He was actually someone who thought that one of the greatest failings of modern office design and organizational culture was the belief that desks should be clean. He thought the messy desk was an artifact of really good work and interesting work, and that really smart people, highly performing people, 
need mess. Mess is part of the feedback loop of information. And he said, you know what, we need to be creating workspaces that actually facilitate mess, which was a completely unconventional way of thinking about what mess meant up to this point. Someone with a messy desk was seen as disorganized, ineffective, right? And he's sort of flipping this on his head and saying, no, 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 mess is part of the process. We need to create an office that allows for mess. And this is kind of one of the underpinnings of this new furniture system that he called and is called Action Office. Action Office originally started as a series of really kind of set furniture pieces, desks, and they had some of what they called kind of a phone booth, which was a slightly insulated kind of space for your phone that had some light walls around the desk itself to give you some privacy. These are the kind of cubicles. We... A little mini cubicle for the desk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I always think of like American movies, like, you know, the, the opening of The Matrix when Keanu Reeves is like crawling around. I always think of that sort of American, I don't know, sort of like chest high kind of mini walls that you can sort of see over and there's a desk in there and people have their stuff pinned up. Is that action office? That's where we're going. Yes, that's not action office. Yeah, you're a little ahead of me, but yes. Oh, we're not there yet. Oh God, okay. (laughs) Sorry, I've jumped into the matrix already. Sorry. No, 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 but you're right. Absolutely right. That is where the story goes. So the early ones are really designed for kind of a more executive class. So they are really highly finished. There's walnut and beautiful aluminum uh, feet and it's a very stylish design, actually. One of the original desk designs that he creates, which I really love, is a flip top desk. So it's a very flat, very slim, low profile desk, but it has this flip top with a corkboard interior where workers could kind of pin information up and kind of use that as a way of kind of visually managing information. He really thought visual information was really important to thinking. And so this is an example of where he really wanted to try to balance this idea of a messy desk is really important. So we want to have mess, but we also want to be able to have a clean appearance when we want a clean appearance. And so the desk is designed to sort of close up when you're not using it. And this first iteration of Action Office wasn't actually very successful market-wise. It was a very beautiful, highly acclaimed one, but it didn't do very well in the market. But a few years later, in the late 1960s, Herman Miller, under the auspices and research practices and production work of uh, Robert Probst and his research team, they developed a new iteration they called Action Office 2. And this is the first modular systems furniture line that includes a a mix of these kind of basic modular components. And here we're talking low partitions, like you're describing, that can support work surfaces, different kinds of storage elements. And these could be configured in an almost infinite variety of configurations to support different kinds of working styles, different kinds of classes of workers, and different kinds of office environments. And so they are the system of interlocking workspaces or workstations that each are designed to the particular needs of the workers and can be kind of connected together like a, an egg crate, right? Like a series of little nests. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how code breakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Hold up. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. I'm looking at the front cover of your book, Open Plan, a design history of the American office. Is that what we're talking about? Because there's something really beautiful and mid-century and American about that sort of modular design that's on the front. I don't know. Maybe it's just my obsession with American mid-century modern <laughs> that is kind of coming out here. But there is something rather beautiful and, I don't know, familiar about it as well. In American offices, they're not quite as nice as the one on your book. They tend to be that kind of grey colour. I don't know if we really had that in the 60s in the UK, but it does seem very American. Yeah, it became very much part of the American design style of especially of the 1970s. And yes, the image on that cover is actually a Westinghouse system because very soon after Herman Miller released their action office to this new kind of furniture system, it arrived. And this is really important to connect back to the earlier point at the same time that office landscaping arrived in the United States as well. So up to this point, office landscaping had been a very much a European phenomenon. Mostly there had been some reporting on it in the U.S., but it hadn't gotten a lot of attention. And in 1967, Quickborner opens their first American office and they plan their very first American office landscape, an experimental landscape that they do for DuPont in their Freon division of DuPont. And that gets an enormous amount of press. Very soon, QuickBorner is quite busy with major companies around the U.S. doing these office landscapes. And at the same time, this Action Office 2 is released. And the two very quickly become treated by the American architectural and design press as parallel complementary concepts. Was there a kind of status thing? Did it become sort of instantly successful? I mean, you mentioned DuPont. Obviously, DuPont was a massive company, was certainly a massive company in the 1960s. I mean, DuPont pretty much built America. Were these big corporations embracing this new philosophy, this new style, this new modernist design? Not all. And it is interesting because I think while some were very excited about it, and again, this gets back to that piece of emerging new culture, specifically the idea of sort of moving away from this top-down management culture to something that's more dynamic, something that's more flexible, something that gives greater autonomy and agency to workers rather than having a more top-down structure. 
And those kinds of companies, companies that were already looking to sort of reimagine their organizational culture, people in management who really wanted to sort of shake things up and embrace this new youth culture, those kinds of companies tended to be drawn to this open plan concept, whether it was office landscaping, whether it was new action office or kind of a combination of the two. They were really thinking about this as a signal of their flexibility, of their anti-hierarchy kind of mode. That's interesting. There's a sort of language in that style, that open plan, that's a sort of visual style, a visual language that kind of embodies the values of companies. I can imagine, you know, modern companies going, yes, this is the kind of stuff that we want. Yes. And I want to be very clear that one of the reasons this was so significant is not just because they had everybody out in the open. It's because specifically management and executives were also in the open. The original open plan was very much about the idea that everybody should be in the open plan. And there should be no more of these enclaves of powerful people and their teak enclosed offices that were the kind of icons of power in the mid-century corporation in this new office, in this new open plan environment. Everybody is in the open. Everybody is accessible. Everyone is somewhat visible. It has similar levels of visibility and similar levels of privacy, although that part will change (laughs) very quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is it. You've painted this lovely picture. That's the dream. We've got this new kind of corporate language, new values. It's democratic. It's open. It's playful. How did the dream play out? So we've established the dream, but did it work? You know, we all have horrific open plan office stories, I think. Tell me some good things and some bad things. Yes. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think the legacy here is pretty clear that it was not the halcyon utopia that it was imagined to be. (laughs) Yeah. Because the dream that we're all equal, actually, the reality is you kind of want hierarchy and you want private spaces and you want to be closed off so you can actually do some bloody work. Anyway, sorry, I'm jumping in. But tell us, you know, from your point of view, the reaction to this new landscape. Yeah, from the very beginning, there were some that were very excited about it. There were people who were very eager to adopt this. And I think for some, it really represented the possibility of a more egalitarian environment. So that was very exciting. But very quickly, it became clear that that isn't what was really on offer. When I write about this, I talk a lot about the sort of tension between the fantasies as they were represented and the realities as they were experienced. So one piece of this is that, of course, very quickly, executives in the management that were supposed to be out in the open were very resistant to the notion of being open. And, and actually, some of the earliest resistance was among that group. Remember that lower class workers, you know, secretarial staff and other kinds of technical workers had long been in spaces with almost very little privacy often. Um, So this idea of being out in the open wasn't really new for them. It was more new for these other people who had long become accustomed to the promise of privacy. So one of the groups that immediately is very resistant is that group. I think that's part of the early kind of grousing. But I think very quickly, there also is this kind of failure of the open plan in terms of things like noise. It was an incredibly noisy environment. And that piece, I think, is one of the most often dismissed, was dismissed actually by the architects and designers who kept telling workers and organizations that everything would get better if people would just accept the noise as part of the way in which you have privacy. They actually tried to sort of suggest to workers that the noise itself was how you had privacy. Uh, And they would often compare this to the kind of privacy you might have at a noisy restaurant where there's all this hustle and bustle and the wait staff is going about and you're surrounded by people. And yet at your table, you could have a private conversation. 
And so they sort of had this idea, oh yeah, you you have privacy. You just don't realize that privacy. This is a psychological reframing of what privacy is. You don't need walls to have privacy, right? We can have this cone of privacy by way of noise. And of course that was bullshit. Well, this is it. Because my question is, did this new office landscape, did it sort of motivate behavioral change? Or did people just kind of behaved as they always have done and resisted against it when necessary, things like noise and things like privacy and the, the kind of breakdown of hierarchy. Right. Yeah. I think that the idea was that it would facilitate some kind of behavioral change. But as with so many other architectural plans that where they envision architecture changing everything, that almost never is how it is, right? We often over-promise and under-deliver. <laughs> with architecture. And I think this is no exception. It seems to be, particularly since the pandemic, I suppose, we're very much blurring the lines between workspace and home space. And although it's interesting, I was, you know, Elon Musk, who just sort of took over Twitter, was berating people for staying at home. It's like, you've got to come into the office. You've got to come into the office. Do offices still have a function? Is it important for us to come together, not just on Zoom calls, but to actually physically be in contact with each other? What's your sort of instincts and what, what are your sort of hunches about the way we're going to be working? Yeah, well, I do think it's not surprising that Musk was saying, you know, we want you back in the office because we've actually been seeing this for the last year. A lot of offices are now pushing their workers. We saw and even in the tech industry where so many of those tech companies like Apple promised almost forever work from home options, right? And are kind of shifting the plan, indicating that they want people to come in at least some of the time, right? Where people are back in the office. And I think there's a few reasons for this. I mean, one is I think a fantasy about what the office is and that continues, right? There is something, a lot of organizational leadership see something magical about the office as a space that can change the way that people work and change the way that people interact, that can improve people's communication, right? There's this kind of belief that space itself can transform things. And I think this is part of the persistence of the open plan itself, right? It's part of that same fantasy. And I think it's also about control because when workers are working from home, they aren't as visible, their work is not as accessible or as under the thumb of people in power. And so I think there's also some really interesting power dynamics that are reflected in this moment. And what I think is really interesting is how much workers are challenging these companies when they are sort of trying to be forced back into the office. They're actually resisting it. I think there have been some really interesting transformations that have happened because of the possibility of working from home. I think disabled activists have been talking for years, decades, about the possibility of creating more flexible work environments that allowed people to work from home because that would allow a greater inclusion of disabled workers. And I think many of the tools that disability activists have fought for to be common practice in the office have become common practice in the era of the Zoom call, in the era of all of these other tools that we use, Slack and so on, that allow for asynchronous kind of options. And so I do think that this does suggest the possibility of a reformulation or reconfiguration of work. But I can't say that the office is dead. And I say this because in my experience, every time we think the office is dead, and I will tell you the office has been declared dead many, many times, <laughs> it seems to come back. So it may not be in the next decade. It may take a couple of decades, but somehow I suspect that the office has not gone for good. I am as curious as anyone where it's all headed and how the future will be kind of reconfigured around these changing needs. Yeah. It's funny, actually, all the language and the politics and everything else that we've been talking about in this conversation, I suddenly was whisked back to watching The Office. You know, the I mean, there's the American version of The Office, which I haven't really seen, but I'm going to say the proper version of The Office, the Ricky Gervais office. It's really interesting, the politics and the dynamics. And I think part of what makes that such an extraordinary television series is all the things that we've been talking about. 
you know, David Brent in a kind of separate little office, you know, that kind of power play, all that politics stuff is all there in that open plan office. God, it's a good series. I've just been re-watching it while I said this in my mind again. I mean, I actually am a huge fan of workplace comedies. I love representations of corporate bureaucracy. And of course, one of my most current favorites of this genre is the recent television series Severance. What's it called? Severance? Severance, yes. This is, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's worth a watch. Is that the one with Brian Coxon? It has Adam Scott and John Turturro and Christopher Walken, interestingly. <laughs> it's, it's a really fabulous show. <laughs> highly recommend. Okay. Yeah, here's my office story. Years and years ago, when The Office just came out, it must have been about 2003, maybe, the UK office just came out and Ricky Gervais, you know, suddenly became a big star in the UK. I was in America and I was in Los Angeles and I was in an office talking to the head of this TV company. And he said to me, I remember him saying to me, he said, oh, what's, what's big in the UK at the moment? I said, oh, you've got to watch this TV show called The Office. It's really funny. It's really dark. He'd never heard of it. So I nipped next door. There was a big record store. And I bought the box set of The Office. And I came back and I gave it to him. I said, watch this. Honestly, it's absolutely brilliant. He said, OK, I'll watch it. And he went on to make The American Office. So it's you. You were behind that connection. <laughs> When I heard the Americans were making The Office and I looked at the production company, Revelé, I'm like, do I get some kind of like massive finder's fee? No. Anyway, the open plan office, who knows where it's going to go, but we can trace it all the way back to some the German, remind us of the Germans' names. Yes, Eberhard and Wolfgang Schnell, the Quick-Borner team. The Quick, not porno, the Quick. <laughs> Borner. The Quick-Borner team, they are responsible for the open plan office and presumably the TV series and Severance <laughs> and The Matrix. Yes, yes. Quick Border and Robert Probst. We have to give dual credit. It is a twin birth, I think. There we go. Jennifer, it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much. It's been absolutely lovely. Will you come on and discuss other things? Because I love talking about this kind of stuff. I love it when inventions open up worlds of language and politics and, you know, stuff. Interesting stuff. Thank you. A pleasure. That's it. Thank you very much for listening. I hope very much, if you've made some New Year's resolutions this year, that one of your New Year's resolutions, a New Year's resolution that's easiest to keep is to leave us a beautiful, gleaming five-star review. It would make us very happy. It would make you happy as well. It would mean that you have kept at least one of your New Year's resolutions. So for all concerned, I suggest you go and do that right now, this second. Uh, thank you very much for your company as ever. I'll see you on the next episode. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Volk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's PATENTED for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.